and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a majorly awesome show for you. It is the Turned Out of Punk live episode from Boston featuring Nate from Converge, coming back to the show for the third time. Chris Menacucci, a.k.a. Cooch, from Righteous Jams, Mind Eraser, uh, MFP, like uh, so many, so many bands. Uh, CeCe, a.k.a. Chris Corey. I guess it'd be Chris Corey, a.k.a. CeCe, from Mind Eraser, Magic Circle, Soul Swallower, etc., etc., etc. Greg... Uh, Greg Mental, Greg from Locking Out, Greg Will Not. Uh, if you don't know who Greg is, believe me, he is an amazing guest. And Josh Cantor, the organist for the Boston Red Sox. I tell you, you go to Boston with Turn Out of Punk, you get a mega show. Anyway, more on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. Uh, also, if you want to get in touch with me in the immediate, you can find me on various forms of various forms of social media at Lefford Damien. Also, you can check out the Facebook page run by my brother over at facebook.com slash turned out of punk. You can also, if you would like to subscribe to this show and support it and you use iTunes, go over to iTunes and do just that. And also while you're there, write a review and rate it. And while you're there, you will also see that there are some other podcasts that are in the Turn Out of Punk family. There's Oil and Flowers, Buddha Blaze and myself talking about cannabis. There's Clobbering Time, Tom Bryan and myself talking about wrestling. And of course, Turn Out of Punk Footnotes, which is hosted by Chris O'Toole and myself. And each week... We dissect an episode of Turn Out a Punk, but this week, Chris O'Toole is on Turn Out a Punk as well because he was with me on this tour. So it's a great little introduction for those of you who don't know who he is. If you don't know who he is, welcome to listening to the show because he's a big part of the show. So now you will find out why he's a big part of the show on the uh, the flagship show. Is that what we're going to call this Turn Out a Punk sort of main thing? The flagship show? Anyway. You'll find him on this show this week. Uh, also, uh, if you would like to support myself and some of the other endeavors I do, go over to YouTube.com and watch uh, the Tournament of Death Bloodlust documentary that I made with Vice. Watch some of the Canadian cannabis stuff that I did. You know, just just do that. Do any of that stuff that you want. You know, that'd be a great way to great way to help. And uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Also, once again, thank you very much to the fine people at Rode Microphones for outfitting me with such fine microphones for this whole podcasting tour. They gave me a, a mic, mics, so I had mics and will travel and was able to record all this stuff. And yeah, I guess we're going to get on to this week's show right now. This week on the show, it's the first episode of the Turn Out of Punk live tour. And I know if you're someone like myself and you listen to a lot of these live podcasts, they're not always your favorites because I think they... They deviate from the format um, in a major way. So what I sought to do with the Turn Out of Punk live shows is try and make sure that they uh, they harken back to the Turn Out of Punk format of the normal episodes. This might mean nothing to you and you might not care and you just want me to get on with the episode. And I promise you, I will in a second. But I just want you to be aware of, you know, some little things that I thought about going into this whole live show experience. Um, so what I tried to do is have a bunch of different guests. A guest will come on, then Chris will come back on and we'll do a footnote. The next guest will come on, Chris will come back on, we'll do a footnote, et cetera, et cetera. Originally, I had planned to bring everyone back on for like a Q&A panel thing. That was a disaster. Don't worry. 
this episode cuts off before you have to hear the panel. That didn't really happen. Uh, and also, unfortunately, this episode starts about two or three minutes into Greg Mental's interview. But the hour and a half that you are left with is incredible. It will be a, a wide-ranging conversation with people that call Boston their home, or Boston area, I should say, their home. Nate calls me out on calling Salem, Boston a little bit later on in the show, you'll hear. Um, so yeah, so I just, you know, hopefully this will be something you enjoy listening to. I really enjoyed getting a chance to do it. Thank you to all the guests that took part in this thing. Thank you, of course, to Kim and Brian and, and everyone helped me put it together. And of course, thank you to Chris O'Toole, who here on this show. Uh, I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you listen to this thing. It's really good. I do have some corrections. Uh, once again, as I said in the beginning, Greg's interview does kind of just jump in there. Uh, to bring you up to speed, I ask him the titular, uh, when did you first hear punk question? And he starts giving me an answer. And then that's pretty much where the show picks up. Uh, also, it's uh, Ivan Reitman. At one point, I say that he is involved in the Making a Strange Brew. I don't think he is at all. Also, Ivan Reitman is a Canadian, which as a Canadian person, I should have known, but I seem to claim that he wasn't. And Strange Brew was actually directed by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, who are Canadian, which would make Strange Brew a Canadian movie. Trust me, this all makes sense once you start listening to the episode. All right. I think that's it for today. All these people that are on the show for the first time will be back for part twos. I promise you, because they're great. This is fantastic. I really, I was worried, you know, when I record this thing, I'm like, ah, is this going to turn out okay? Will it be worth putting up? And yes, yes, it definitely is worth putting up. So everyone, please sit back, relax and enjoy Nate from Converge, Doom Riders, etc., Cooch, CC, uh, Josh Cantor, and of course, Greg Mental on Turn Out a Punk. Psych, because I know some of you skip the intros and just cut to the episodes. This is super fucking important, and I didn't want anyone to miss it. Friend of the show, Freddie Pompey, is having some health problems right now. Freddie Pompey, of course, was in the Vile Tones, guest on the show, a rock and roll legend um, for a lot of reasons. Listen to that episode if you need any more evidence of that. Anyway, he is uh, currently suffering from lung cancer and is in desperate need of some financial aid. So if you are able to, please go to www.youcaring.com slash Freddie Pompey and uh, dash six nine six oh nine eight i don't know if you need that part maybe you do but if you do whatever do go to that page yeah you definitely do need that part okay so that number please put that number in there um and go there and contribute if you have any money and contribute something please uh he needs the help he, he does need the help right now financially and so if you can contribute to that that would be great and also if you're in the toronto area there's a cool event that also allows you to contribute on february the 5th uh, there is going to be a very special uh, event featuring members of Arson, the B-Girls, uh, the Wives, Battered Wives, before they had to change their name, the Curse, the Demics, the Dents, the Diodes, the Mods, and others are going to be all playing a benefit to assist in the medical bills for Freddie Pompey. So if you're in Toronto, go to the Garrison for that, because that is a ridiculous lineup of a who's who of First Wave Toronto people. Um, but also, if you can't go to that, once again, please go to that You Caring site and donate some money. Okay, that's it. 
on with Turn Out a Punk live in Boston. Uh, so just like hanging out with kids in the neighborhood, met this dude who played drums. Skase was the dude who played bass in the band, and I used to go to their band practice in their basement. And then, you know, they put me on to like Dead Kennedys and all that sort of like era of punk and then the Discord stuff. And then kind of from there, it was just like digging through the special thanks and the record stores and just kind of, we all kind of collectively went from being into kind of like Devo-y, Gang of Four-y kind of like punk, but not real aggressive punk into like real punk and then from there, hardcore. But that's like, you know, because you're, I think, a couple years younger than me, that's uh, kind of after the fact to be getting into Gang of Four and yeah, was, Devo. Like, where was, where, where was that? Like, what drew you to that stuff? You guys, well, that the, stuff? That was the, like, the shit they were playing. Like, yeah. I didn't know about it at all. Like, I got in, like, they were playing this music. They were, like, covering those songs and put me on to that stuff. But, like, as kids? Like, how old are they? Yeah, well, they were, like... Thing about the Cape is there was like a lot of these bands that were sort of playing local halls that were into sort of there was this band called the Monsters from the Cape that were like really young and they were doing like the Misfits kind of but they were young they were like 12 13 doing that and those kids were going to Barnstable High School and that's where Skase and Nate and this kid Josh uh, all went to high school and there was sort of a punk scene that existed on the Cape believe it or not with really young kids and I don't know how they got into that type of stuff and I don't know how they sort of went backwards about it, but that's that's what they were playing and that's what they were covering. And it was like a three three man band, the drummer sang, and then I was like, yo, let me sing. And then we started to do more like, started to cover Minor Thread and Misfits and start to get into like the more aggressive style punk. And then, you know, CC can pass you the MP3s, it's out there for like No Such Luck Demo was like the first band that it's I was incredible. actually in. It's really good. But when your turn, Chris. CC can tell you about that. So, but that was like my I mean, that was like a so you really real, dumbed down that band is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. We, like, like they were like post hardcore sort of like doing interesting shit. They could have been like, the killers. But I couldn't sing, so I was like, let me let me actually like just scream because this dude's singing yeah. and he has a good voice and like this is boring. Let me get like, <laughs> let me actually play some fast music and like it was cool though. I mean, I still yeah. like that type of shit when I hear it I'm like it brings me way back like when I hear Gang of Four and stuff like that it's so cause that's like you Fox know Cox, that type of vibe yeah cause like when you bring up the like you know kids getting into the misfits in, oh, yeah. in the 90s makes sense kids like younger kids getting into Gang of Four in the era of Pennywise and No Effects that's oh, yeah. like a real like left turn well these dudes are music nerds you know they've always yeah. like you know just we were lucky to have older people around us that sort of like there's a big skate culture on the Cape and there was I'm sure there's still punk and hardcore scene to some extent but there definitely was a lot of little venues that hosted small shows that um, and there was a lot of local bands that that actually were playing that type of stuff on the Cape so so did no such luck ever tour out we played like one show off Cape in like I want to say like Bridgewater or something with the trust and like open up or one of those type of bands that were around like the the like third tier of Boston-y hardcore bands in the like I think it was like 1998 or hopefully no one from the trust is here right now no I love the trust are you kidding me <laughs> no the trust were I love the trust personally I listen to shit out of that record and the demo and stuff but um what people you know they weren't headlining bands yeah, we, yeah. Play, we opened up for like those and like what would make it last like you know CC you know, where, where's my boss but you know all these bands you know what I'm talking about <laughs> but yeah we played one show off Cape that was like sick my dad brought us I mean my dad brought me to a million shows off Cape when I was a kid but we played that one show and then and we played the Orleans Juice Bar a hundred thousand times which is the local kind of punk spot at the time I think it's closed now that had uh, you know a lot of shows that I feel like the Dropkicks may have played there one time randomly 
something really? like that. I wish Skates was here to fact check me because my memory is bad, but there were some big bands that actually came through. And, and that's there. like the original singer, right? That's before. Dude, you're asking the wrong dude. I never listened to him in my life. You've never listened to Dr. No, never. <laughs> never in my life. So I'm not my shit, man. No, I know. I, and, and which is, I find interesting because you have a very, I remember seeing your record collection. Yeah. And it was so refined in yeah, what you were looking yeah, for. Yeah. I have a very, very particular taste. A very particular taste. I'm super taste. picky, man. So, like, what was, though, like, you obviously meet these yeah, guys, yeah. that's your exposure to punk, yeah. but, like, what was your exposure? Like, when did you first start hearing this sound that would become the template for your taste in music? Ah, man, for, for, well, for, like, if you're talking, like, the stuff I was listening to when I was into hardcore, I mean, that sort of grew as I started getting into the music scene in Boston and yeah, stuff. Yeah, what was like that, the first what was the first hardcore band? Like what was the first band you heard with a guy or a person screaming as opposed to Well, I think that like being like in 4th grade getting like you know, like NWA that type of aggressive music. Mm-hmm. Like I was always drawn towards the aggressive style of music. So like I remember like in in middle school, I'm in elementary school, some of the first tapes that we passed around were like Nirvana and, and NWA and shit like that and Rage Against the Machine and that type of stuff. And that, that to me was like, oh, this is so aggro. Like, this is what I'm into. Because, you know, I was teen angst and had family problems and all that shit. So that was like, okay, I'm way more drawn to that than like the Smashing Pumpkins or whatever, you know, other kids were listening to. So like, and I remember like in middle school, one of, one of my friend's older brother had Gorilla Biscuits and that was like with the start today and the trumpet. And I was like, I listened to that forever. That was before I even knew like, that it wasn't normal music. Like, yeah. I just had the CD and I thought it was dope. That's so funny, but that's like the first one you hear because that I think would be, you know, not that you know, mental sound like yeah, Gorilla yeah. Biscuits, but like if there was like an aesthetic oh, forebearer yeah. to it. Yeah, and then once I got into like the punk and hardcore scene, it was just like, I, God, I don't know how I decided that I this was trash and this was what I liked. But, you know, clearly I had a, a an opinion and a style that I gravitated towards. And I think it's like the music and the aesthetic you know, as well, you know, because I, when I first got into punk hardcore music, I was definitely into like punk music, like Showcase Showdown, stuff that was going on in Boston. I was like, oh, this is cool. Those are some of the first shows I started to go to, mostly because a lot of the Cape Cod kids were more into punk than hardcore, mm-hmm. you know, like actual like spike punk and shit, you know, like jackets and all that stuff. So that was sort of like all the kids around me putting me on to that type of music. So that's what I was into. And then once I actually started to go to shows on my own and get rise to shows from other people, I got to see like Floor Punch and Ten Yard Fight and that sort of like, youth crew vibe that was going on in Boston and I was like oh no this is this is the shit because the energy was like pfft, stage dives and that type of stuff was way more you know I don't know just attracted me to it so what was the first show you went to like you mentioned those punk shows oh god I mean it doesn't have to be a, what was the first concert you went to do you remember that no uh, I don't remember I mean I, I saw like I think I want to say like Pinkerton Thugs and some random like UK members of the business like Gonads or some weird band like that in Boston with Skates when we were like real young we got a ride up I don't know if that's I think that's the name of the band and then like uh, yeah I don't know I can't remember honestly I mean I I remember like some of my oldest memories of good shows were like first and second church shows like Tanner Fight and Fuller Punch and that but that was like 98 but I think Skates and I probably went to some random stuff like Darkbuster and those type of bands, you know, I don't know, like Darkbuster and, uh, I don't know, I tried Ducky Boys, I tried to get it out yeah. and erase it from my memory. <laughs> but yeah, I probably saw a bunch of those type of shows when I was trying to find my, like, you know, just learning about the music and like, oh cool, all these bands are dope because they're just doing this type of music. And then yeah. once I got exposed to all of it, I was like, okay, well, you know, fuck that, I want to go see these bands. And well, Do you remember, like, you talked about that Floor Punch, Tanger Fight show, what was the first show you went to where you're like, 
Because like Mental was such an amazing live band. Yeah, I mean live like being live like being good live is always way more important than anything else. Like someone interviewed yeah. me the other day about like recording and stuff, and like my, our whole thing was like figure out how to make us as figure out how to capture like the live energy because like live come see us live we're good on record I, whatever like take it or leave it I was just trying to figure out how to capture that sound so I was always drawn towards like live shows with the most amount of energy possible mm-hmm. and like that's what I was always attracted to from hardcore punk's like point of view when I was getting into it was there like you know pre-tenured fight what were the what were some of the other youth crew bands around here I don't I mean for me tenured fight was like a band when I was in like when I was like a junior in high school so I don't know what was really before that because they even played on the Cape believe it or not one time at oh, yeah? a hall on the Cape yeah um, they played with like some uh, like, like like rap core band um, yeah <laughs> there was like rap core was like you remember rap core was like a thing um, I think they were called East Side. they played with uh, Tanner Fight at some hall by my house in Marston Mills in the Cape yeah <laughs> and that was when I was like in 10th or 11th grade so what was before that in Boston I wouldn't know you yeah that's Cooch I was not around for that type of stuff so <laughs> yeah no to blame me and for like youth crew style stuff, I don't know if there even was like what was going on in that era. So when you started, that era was a lot of like victory type of weird stuff mm-hmm. going on, you know. Mm-hmm. When that youth crew revivals happens, and you know, like that that hit everywhere. I remember waiting for hours for Tenure Fight to show up, and they never fucking showed. Damn, <laughs> this is before the internet. Toronto, man. Tell you, Toronto. None of us fuck with you. No, none of you fuck with Toronto. We really want to get to that story, don't we, Greg? Before we get that. I don't remember that story. Yeah. Oh, I never forget it. When did you? Uh, so when you first started coming down to shows in Boston? Yeah. Um, you guys played that one show off with that band, but did you guys break up before you started coming down to Boston? Or? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we were a band like through high school, and then after high school, we all like. Well, not all of us, but like. The dude who played guitar and the dude who played drums like went off to do their own thing, and we sort of lost touch. But me and Skase stayed friends because I was like Skase lived near me, and we were always like doing shit outside of hardcore, like you know hanging out on weekends and stuff all the time. So um, you know I stayed close with Skase. Then when I moved to Boston, and he went to college, like uh, you know Mass Maritime, uh, you know we we still hung out on the weekends because I was going to see my family, and then we started mental with Dookie. Dookie actually, we met Dookie from that spot the juice bar on the cape which like um like ben who plays drums in converge now or has played drums in converge forever i think he still plays drums in converge he was in like weird kind of emo screamo type bands yeah 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 so i haven't seen that dude in years but he used to him and like the homies from sandwich and that part of the cape were in like kind of screamo emo type bands i was like popping in the 90s you know and uh, we were all friends because on the cape it was like everybody just there was like only so many hardcore kids so there's no like we're all in our own style, but we still all hung out and went to all you can eat pizza and all that shit. So, he uh, those those dudes were in like um, some sort of screamo band that Dookie actually came out to see. I think it was called like Honi Asana and the Hand Grenades or something like that. But um, only saw yeah. Someone can come fact check me. Your, your guy can fact check. <laughs> That's me. why you're great that you're on the first yeah, guest yeah, because yeah, everyone else can fact check you for the rest of the night. You got there, but, and then so Dookie came out to see them at the juice bar and then No Such Luck played and we played like Project X, like some Project X song like 30 times in a row. And, you know, and, like, and, uh, and then Dookie was like, wow, you guys are crazy. And like we met Dookie and then like from that show, some random summer like in high school and then we stayed in touch. And then when I moved to Boston, Dookie's dorm was near my dorm and then we started hanging out and then Justin's Christian church was by my dorm so I started going to like vegetarian lunch with him or vegetarian dinner on Wednesdays and then we just walk around talking about hardcore and then that's how we sort of like 
started the band from there because we all sort of like proximity with each other pretty close. So when you guys came out, Mental, um, yeah, it was like you guys were doing something really different. Like now, it's mm-hmm. it's it's funny to say that because sure. so many bands are kind of doing or follow the path that Mental kind of first blazed. But sure, you guys were doing something different. Like you weren't a youth crew revival band. What you were looking at was like a different period of punk and hardcore. Yeah. Uh, where did you see was that something that was like a conscious choice or is that just how the sound kind of developed no no sure it was like we really like well me and like I sort of like worshipped some of the New York hardcore bands that weren't as like you know popular well known at the time like like Underdog or well not New York but you know what I mean like Underdog and like some of those like not not you know like Youth of Today you know Super Touch not not that Youth of Today is unknown but you know what I mean like at the time, I think in Boston, there was a lot of like, you know, basically it was the American Nightmare and then the wave after it, there was like the American Nightmare kind of copy style band. So there was a lot of like, and then like the Converge style band. So there wasn't a lot of like, at that time, bands that were doing Youth Crew Revival. I mean, there were some like Stop and Think and stuff, but it was it was sort of like the cycle had gone, youth, you know, uh, and, or I'm sorry, In My Eyes, Thinner Fight, those type of bands had broken up and the new wave of bands were more like the serious kind of darker bands. So we were like, okay, the next cycle, we wanted to do the thing that was not going on at the time. And then we were also sort of like really worshipped those old New York hardcore bands that weren't as, you know, well-known by the kids that weren't to hardcore, like, you know, that went to hardcore shows at that time. So when Mental came out, that demo comes out, and you guys had buzz immediately, like like hardcore buzz. Like, it was, sure. you know, like everyone was message board kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was that... Cause, cause DFJ was in what? What's his band just before? Down uh, Dominant Out. Yeah, yeah so Dominant I was out. like the Trust band after yeah. that. Dominant Out. Um, I don't know if DFJ was probably in. I mean, DFJ is in a million bands. I don't know what he was in at the time when Mental came out. I'm not sure if he was in that many bands at that time that were playing, but he was definitely in like Dominant Out, um, and they were awesome. Like we loved Dominant Out. But where were like was it just from the live show? Like where did that buzz come from? Because like in Toronto, I heard about you guys. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we we were we we're fortunate to get buzz without having like any besides Justin anybody that did anything really like that people knew about in the hardcore scene um so I don't know I mean we played a bunch we practiced a bunch so I think live we weren't that terrible you know what I mean like we all we, all, we practice all the time like that's all we did we just hang out and practice so I don't I honestly don't know how it it, it blew up in that way but um we always seem to have like a decent live shows and people show up to shows from from out of the gate for sure um, I don't know. Word of mouth. I don't know, really. Honestly, I'm not sure. So you guys started playing out, and you went yeah. on that. Your first tour was you guys kind of jumped on that Tear It Up uh, Think I Care tour, right? For a couple dates? Yeah, did we? Uh, this is where you're going to lose me, bro. This is where you played Toronto. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. All right, go on. <laughs> the show was supposed to be uh, <laughs> Fucked Up, Career Suicide. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> and it was going to be Think I Care. <laughs> And tear it up. Yeah, some somebody was late. We had to open or something. And I was probably talking shit, right? Yeah, you hated Toronto. You said fuck Toronto. Well, you said you know what? <laughs> fuck career suicide. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, it was the best. First of all, it I'm might be my favorite set I've seen in Toronto. I like, I'm not talking shit. Yeah, I loved yeah, it, Greg. Well, I'm apologizing right now. So. Okay, well, I don't, I'm not Martin Farkas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't say fuck fucked up. All right, you all said right. fuck career suicide. All right, all Screw right. Martin Farkas. He's not here. Well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just sure. I, I think I like career suicide, so I apologize. <laughs> So I, I don't care. Okay. No, I do. <laughs> I knew you'd have something for me. 
<laughs> but that show, it was. I do remember that show. That was a dope show. It was a dope yeah, show. It was, it was a fun. fun. It was yeah, on. I remember. It was on Thanksgiving, but Canadian Thanksgiving. Oh yeah, I probably had no idea what that was. None time. of you guys it did. Blew my mind. Yeah, yeah, I was dumb, man. I was what? really dumb then. <laughs> no, no, not that you're dumb. I just no, think I like they don't advertise Canadian <laughs> Thanksgiving in America. No, I know, but I damn sure bet everyone I work with like, oh yeah, today's Canadian Thanksgiving, like three months ago, whatever the fuck it was. There's you know no I mean? way. People know about that shit. I heard about Canadians recently that celebrate American Thanksgiving. That's what's up, man. <laughs> what's up? Tell them to come through. I'll come up. <laughs> Our Thanksgiving has a lot less baggage, historically speaking. Yeah, no. Look, Kill the vibe on with that, that one. On um, Greg, I want to talk to you all night, but we got to like a lot yeah, of yeah, other people talk to. And I want no, but I, I but the thing is, I gotta I gotta like I want to yeah. go way more into the because like when yeah. Mental came out, yeah. it. It really changed, like, for the era of hardcore that I was part of, it changed everything. Sure. Like, it was really, like, that was, like, Locking Out came out. Like, yeah. people started, merch became a big yeah, issue. Yeah. And then, obviously, Mental begets, like, the Cold World, Righteous Jams yeah. era, which begets <laughs> sure. this whole, like, you know, title fight to this day. Sure, yeah. What do you think the legacy of Mental is? Oh, man, well, I appreciate all those bands doing that. And, like, you know, people ask me that. I just feel weird about it. Because, honestly, like, I just think it was... There was no intention behind it, you know. We were just doing a band, doing what we liked. I think that hardcore punk just has such a, it cling like needs an identity, and it was like, oh, here's an identity, here's an aesthetic, and here's a cool aesthetic. I'm gonna, you know, it's like punks wearing spiked hair, or the hardcore kids being locking out style. It's just a style to me. It's just sort of a not a new style, but sort of a unique take on a style, and people gravitated towards it. And I don't know. I don't know. My, I, I'm humbled by it. I think it's really cool. I, I feel awkward when people are like, "Oh, you, this is inspired all this stuff." Like, I talked to Ned the other day. He interviewed me for some project he was doing for school about, like, you know, you put that out into the world of the ether and what it becomes. And I was like, "Yeah, you know, it's like it just becomes its own universe and it just creates its own thing." And I just think hardcore goes in cycles, and people get influenced by what was behind them. They put their own spin on it, and you know, I'm. I think it's awesome that it happened, but it, there was no like intention or goal behind it. We were just doing what we did, and then, you know, it's great that all these bands were inspired by it and it became a thing. But, um, you know, I can I can I cannot say that I did anything on purpose. But you know, did what we wanted to do as a band and as a label. You know, just put out stuff that I thought was that I personally thought was cool. You know, but I just think it comes from that place where there's like an aesthetic and there is like a style that comes with being a hardcore kid or a punk kid, whether people want to admit it or not. And that's just another sort of style in, in that, you know, oh, I wanna, that's the style I'm gonna choose to be, that's the way I'm gonna dress or act or whatever it is. And like, you know, it is what it is. Same same as I look at like punk rockers that all dress in the same style of like, you know, they're being so alternative, but they're all dressing the same, you know what I mean? So to me, it's like, I look at it critically, you know what I mean? Even though I'm the, the cause of it, you know what I'm saying? So it's a weird thing for me, for sure. Well, it was not weird having you here, buddy. Anytime. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Part two. Yo, man. We're going to do part two. And he's going to be back it. at the end for the panel. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Give it up for Greg. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> yeah, come, why don't you come back? Cause it's really awkward for me to stare back at you back there. <laughs> okay, what are some of your uh, takeaways from that? <laughs> I love... If you legitimately have never heard of Dropkick Murphy's record, I absolutely love that. Um, no diss, I just think it's actually amazing. Uh, I, I, I love the Dropkick Murphys. I do too, but I, I like, love I, that there's someone that may have not ever heard one of their records. I think it's a, like... In the streets of Boston! Yeah, it's a good record. Um, I, had, no, I took no some one. notes. <laughs> no. 
I took some notes. Do you remember when that guy quit? Sorry, do you remember that guy quit being the singer of the Dropkick Murphys? The rumor that went around Toronto was that he quit to become a firefighter. True or false? Was it false? He's true. He did quit to become a firefighter. You gotta direct all questions to that back. He's in the street dogs now. I know he's in the street dogs now, but did he quit to become a firefighter? Is that true? Yeah. Because then he kind of laid the foundation for like all the people from punk bands that quit their punk bands to become firefighters ever since, including our friend, George from Alexa on Fire. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's a stretch, I think. But yeah. he's, he's the original firefighter core. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. OG. Sure. OG FFC. <laughs> okay, Chris. <laughs> Fine, what did you find interesting? I found that interesting. No, no, it was great. Um, I'm curious what Project X song was chosen. Of the one that was played Crossley, 30 times. What's the one there? Two seconds. What's the. Crossley. Crossley. Alright. Good call. Um, gonads. I mean, what a mention. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I, loved, I loved everything about that interview. Um, okay. The Monsters is the best band name, I think. The Monsters? How many bands have been called Monster or The Monsters? The Monsters is the best name. I'm going to have to take it to the resource right now. We're doing what we do normally. This on the show, if you don't listen to footnotes, what we do is we call up this website called Discogs, which has every record ever made on it. Fuck, there's no internet connection on my computer at this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of bands called The Monsters. Oh, it looks like hundreds. <laughs> um, no such luck demo that exists. Yeah. See Still? Me later. Physical copy? What about uh, the Trust? Oh, yeah. Oh, the Trust 7-inch. They're all physical demos. They're not like digital things. The Trust was on Bridge 9. Trust on Gold was like the most sought-after record in Toronto. I remember Jordan Posner having it and just holding it over everyone's head. Like, I've got the Trust on Gold. And then I've got one. I got one. Got on eBay for like 20 bucks. It was not that expensive. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I had the project and that was pretty much my hot takes for that. that I always heard that, uh, uh, your first band, uh, Greg, sounded like seven seconds. Is that true? Is that an accurate? I think that's, Derek Scase told me that. <laughs> my laptop's out in the car. My iPod. Go to your laptop right now. My iPod died today. iPod died. To the ten people watching. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna hear it. You're not gonna hear no such luck. Okay. Well, that's good for the first one, Chris. Let's call up number two. Who has number two on our panel? Panel number two. Nate Newton of the band Converge and of the band Jesuit coming to the stage. Nate. What's up, man? This Nate, as uh, I, you may or may not know. Marks your third appearance on Turnout of Punk. I know. Which puts you with MVP, the wrestler MVP, as the most appeared person on this podcast. I'm really interesting, so <laughs> um, I don't blame you for having me. I, I want to compliment you on your red ass fucking Ronald McDonald shoes. My bright red Ronald McDonald shoes? <laughs> These are waterproof. And also, if you go missing in the snow, they'll be able to find you. <laughs> no, they're definitely on fire, Nate, is what you're looking to say. No. <laughs> yeah, these are, uh, they looked a lot less red on the website. <laughs> <laughs> they look more red on your feet. <laughs> they look so red on my feet. You know what? When you have size 13 feet, you want something that makes them look even brighter. That, yeah. 
And I so mean, there it is. They're beautiful. Thank you. Your feet are beautiful. Thank <laughs> you. My feet are. No one's ever said that, actually. <laughs> well, they're not beautiful. If, if I took these shoes off, you'd be mortified. And you don't know that. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to get this? Do you want to go this way? No. Go <laughs> somewhere else. Nate. I wanted, uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you for coming back on the show, but I guess this Thanks time, for having me. well, this is the third time we've talked. I know. But I want to talk to you about what it was like moving to this city of Boston, because you're originally from the great state of Virginia. So what was it like moving to the even greater state of Massachusetts? Um, well, first off, I never lived in Boston. I moved, oh. I moved to Salem. Oh. Oh, sorry. You know, people get weird about that when you say you're from okay. Boston. Okay, sorry. From, I'm not. I've never lived in Boston. Okay, so Boston area. Boston area. Okay, okay. yeah, when you moved to Boston area. Uh, it was fucking rad because Virginia Beach sucks. <laughs> There's, like, I, I went, literally, like, by the time I moved away, there were, like, no steady venues. The good record stores had closed down. Pat Robertson had fucking just squeezed all the culture out out of town, and basically we Waffle House was twenty four hours, and so that's where we went. But it's and fun. then for one summer they had all you can eat, and it started at ten p.m., and so we would just go at ten p.m. and fucking eat until like <laughs> six in the morning, <laughs> and I got fat. Yeah, really? I did. How like how big? I've uh, sized. I'm 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 wearing size 32. I was probably around 38. Wow. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. From man. Waffle House. Yeah. Were you vegan or vegetarian then? Yeah. Come Should on, man. Double order, scattered, smothered, covered. <laughs> it's delicious, but that shit'll it'll make you grow. I just also like. What are the people other than hardcore kids, obviously? That are at a Waffle House for the all-you-can-eat party at 4 a.m. They're not cool. They're not cool. I, they, I mean, I, the the fact that they weren't cool made them. Yeah, cool. absolutely. The people yeah. watching was amazing. <laughs> and um, are are there any other Waffle House aficionados in here? Are you familiar with the Waffle House jukebox? Oh, absolutely. Well, so, I'm not. What, why don't you bring the rest there, of there's up There's like speed a whole day? section. There's a whole section that's just songs about Waffle House. And so, like, you can buy the, you can buy the records. So I just sent you down a new fucking path of life. But, like, who's, who's writing these records? Like, uh, Mary Welch Rogers sings Waffle House Family. Like, real recording artists. Yeah. Yeah, for real. So, um, what I used to like to do was I would bring, like, a $10 bill. Yeah. And I'd put it in the jukebox, and I would play Waffle House Family as many times as I could just to see who would leave and how long it would take. When I, when I had a $10 bill, usually it was like $4. Yeah. Well, either way, you know, I think four listens of that song might make you want to leave. Not me. No. Oh, it made no. me hungry. <laughs> For you, it's a soundtrack to demolition of, of uh, hash, hash browns. browns. Yeah, we don't have Waffle House in Canada. I know you have Tim Hortons. Yep, it That's, sucks. I, no, it sucks. I don't mind Tim Hortons. No, it's terrible. You can get soup. <laughs> you can get soup, but it's like, it's like like they have a tomato soup, and I swear to God, it's water with ketchup. <laughs> yeah, 
Like they, they could take like you could take like, like this is the most flavorful food ever invented, and you give it to Tim Hortons, and it would come out as a bagel with plain cream cheese. I like bagels. So do I, but not from Tim Hortons. All right. Well then. Disgusting. Chill out. Oh, company. <laughs> it's crazy with Tim Hortons because they open a new one, and it's like the line comes with a franchise. Like well, I mean, you got to see what. What they got going on. Yeah, there. but we all know what they have going on in fucking Canada. We've all been at Tim Hortons in that's, Canada. That's true. Well, you know what? I can't talk because fucking Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> is on every goddamn corner here. Yeah. But could you imagine if Tim Hortons had a 24-hour or like an all-you-can-eat late-night thing? Chilling. Eating. <laughs> yeah. Fat again. Yeah, getting fat again. <laughs> fat again. Fat records. Um, but like moving here, apart from giving up on the Waffle House... Uh, you know, like you got here, and there's like obviously it's I never like, gave up. <laughs> never gave I mean, up. <laughs> I guess you took the waffle house with you in yeah. your soul, but uh, like heading here, it must have felt like yeah, because I just thought they might be giants when you <laughs> make a little waffle house in your soul. <laughs> <laughs> do they do they have a song on the jukebox? They should now. They should definitely have a song. Yeah. We should write. Like a fanfic style, they might be giant songs about Waffle House, and then submit it to them. This is a fucking great <laughs> idea. Let's really do this. Even weirder is the today. I was at In Your Records just down the street there, and uh, well, it was like a ways down the street, like a kilometer or a mile. <laughs> Sorry, uh, half and, a mile. And I got half a mile, and I got the mundane seven inch, which is the pre They Might Be Giants new wave band. Whoa, I know. I that means nothing. <laughs> is it good? Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Well, I'll check it out. Uh, do you know The Shivers? Yes. Teen Line, that song? Sounds yes. like the singer of The Shivers. I, it's that pretty sounds good. cool to me. We should, we should all go to someone's house tonight and listen to the record. It, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm all alone in my late. <laughs> I'm a terrible decision maker. Um, well, Nate, I guess like, but like, so you came here from Virginia Beach, where I imagine there would be like, it would be like one big scene, right? Like all the bands and everything. No, was it separated? It, it, um, by that point, it, it was completely separated. Like, um, it, it was weird. Like I've had this conversation with other people before. Throughout the '80s and into the early '90s, we had a Nazi problem, and I think. I, I don't know if it's the same in other towns where we were. That was like a unifying thing for everybody that wasn't one of them. And the second they were gone, and uh, and you can you can hear the night that happened on the Avail live at the King's Head 10 inch. Oh, really? Yeah, it it's all on the recording. I have that 10 inch. Yeah, well, I was there. It was that was a crazy night. But um, after. After that happened and they stopped coming around, like, I don't know, it didn't take long. Like, people just started kind of turning on each other and, you know, music scenes got really just, this band didn't play with this band anymore. And then venues shut down and there were DIY shows and these guys were mad that these dudes didn't put them on their show and it just got stupid and there was a lot of violence. And then, then there was violence between Virginia Beach people and Richmond people that I cannot for the life of me tell you what it was about. I just remember being like, what the fuck are you guys fighting about all the time? And so that's pretty, pretty much it was like, 
Hey, we need someone to go on tour with Converge. Do you want to come? Yes. I'm fucking out of here. Goodbye. Click. And that was it. So what you were asked to be in Converge, was it like permanent right from the get-go? And they're like, or was it just the first tour type thing? Because um, you knew everyone, obviously. And yeah, well, friends. I toured with them a bunch yeah. already with my other bands. Um, no, it, it, it wasn't like join the band. It was just, we need someone to do this tour. So were you planning on coming back to Virginia Beach after that tour? Or were you just like, I'm just going to I did come back. Else? Oh, you did? Yeah. And then they called again and were like, we have some more shows and no one else knows our songs. Can you come? I was, okay, sure. And then I found myself sleeping on couches up here a lot. And then I was like, well, I mean, I know your songs. <laughs> you gotta have me in. You're not gonna get anybody else. <laughs> it's this good. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, they're stuck with me. So forget Virginia Beach. Forget it. Love the Waffle House, just not be able to go anymore. You know, I go home every now and then. <laughs> you always go home to the waffle. Yeah, you gotta go home every now and then. But no, I mean, Virginia, Virginia Beach doesn't suck. It's just that particular time and that point in my life, I, it was just, I needed to get the fuck out of there. And so, but it's funny, they're always able to produce like waves of hardcore kids. There's always scenes and bands coming out of there, but I guess it's just like out of boredom and frustration of the lack of stuff happening around you, that there's a next wave that just rises up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a really, really big city, mm -hmm. honestly. I mean, like, there's, th there are a lot of people there, and it's all suburbs, so it's all just bored, you know, middle-class kids that have money to buy instruments and shit, and, you know, what else are they going to do? Like, you, you can go surfing... There's a big skate scene there. You know, you can go hang out at bars and get in fights with uh, the military dudes that like to jump local kids. Or you can start a band. And so, you started bands. Well, I'm glad you started a band, Nate. Thanks, man. Jesuit rules. Oh, Jesus. And this Converge thing seems to be doing really well, too. So stick with Converge. I'm, I'm feeling it out. Yeah, it's doing okay. It's doing okay. No, dude, thank you so much. Three Thanks times. For me. Come back for the panel at the end. Okay, and, I will. And uh, four. <laughs> Fuck MVP. You're going to be number four. Mm. I'm not, no, he's way, he's, he's very tough. We, we can't fight him. There's no way we could. But anyway, Nate, thanks All for right, coming. All right, cool. All right. <laughs> Chris. What did you think there? Loved it again. Um, he's I like one of the. He's like like low key one of the funniest people. Like to talk to, he's yeah, just like this. It's not awkward like, saying that, right? With him. I know, right? Right? He's like, I'm looking him in the eyes. I say that, but yeah. But I mean, like, he's got like I don't know. I was always like the, the one of the best sense of humors. I agree. I love your previous interviews. Um, the notes I had on this were primarily Waffle House related. Okay. Um, <laughs> As I immediately looked up to see if it in fact like an album exists, and of course it does. Um, but yeah, as listed on all music, there is in fact. You can buy the. How much is the Waffle House record? Jukebox Favorites Volume 1 Waffle House. Um, various <laughs> artists, um, including Waffle House Family Part 1. Uh, and I'm Cooking is also on there too. Uh, anyway, I thought it was really good. Uh, so I'm going to look into those songs, and you all should too. But um, I'm going to the, I'm, I now have the resource pulled up on my phone. You brought up the Avail 10-inch. 
Yes. We've had people bugging us about 10 inches and we've yet to tackle that because uh, we're busy people. But um, since you have this 10 inch, would you submit that to your... Of the greatest 10 inch, 10 -inch records of all time? It's a time? live record, so it's a bit of a stretch. A live 10 inch? Hey. No, I don't think it makes the... Well, well, I love Avail and I love that record, but like, would you say like the best 10 inch? Like, Humanity is the Devil, uh, the Resolution 10 inch. Uh, yeah, I'm putting it on there. Fuck you, CC. Um, Keep going. Uh, the Queens of, Queens of the Stone Age Beaver Split. Uh, <laughs> the Jack Saints Invalid Split. Uh, fuck, let's not. This is getting boring even for me, and I love this Chrome shit. Chrome Eggs demo. Chrome Eggs demo. Yeah. That's a bootleg, though, because a boot. Can a bootleg count? It has I mean, to be an official release. It is a 10-inch record. It is a 10-inch record, Nate, but it's not. Didn't you just interview Tony Urban? Yeah, I did. Fucking Gordon Soli yeah. record? Gordon Soli motherfuckers. And it's definitely. wrestling thing? Yeah, it's on there, too. Smoke too much weed. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got this one's going to be just a fight. It's not going to be an interview. It's going to be just like... It's going to be like a... Okay, Chris. All right. Before we were rudely interrupted... By, uh, no, that was my my main notes were those, and uh, I like the mundane tie-in to the what was it? They might be giants. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's so weird. Hey, we bought that record today. Yeah. Chris Chris and I went record shopping. Yeah. As you might have heard, and uh, we listened to that single. And it then was very good. They, it was really good. It was I really did not good. expect it to be that good. You, Damien and I go record shopping semi-frequently nowadays, but when we do, Damien picks up a handful of records most often and there are used to be and I would say you play if I hear about eight of them I usually don't like about eight of them so the way that one looked I was like oh this one's gonna be uh, I don't know it's not where I expect that story to go I was no, expecting you to tell everyone Damien picks a dozen records <laughs> they're all taste. sick they're great he, taste, but he's you, amazing at finding you, shit you are but you're a devoted digger where <laughs> terrible you're, you're all his records he picks are terrible <laughs> no, does not like good music but uh, what I'm saying is it was one of those ones where I thought it was gonna go on and it was gonna just be a, a no go for me but it was great actually um, so check that out I don't even what's it called The Mundanes wasn't it called The Mundanes I think it's called The Mundanes the band was but okay anyway Oh, the single? Or the resources. I don't think they have more than one single. All right. Well, there you go. We'll find out. this fucking phone and check it out. No. Um, but no, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's the thing about They Might Be Giants. They're one of those bands that you forget about, and then just like one of their songs, it, they come back into your life and you can't get fucking rid of them. That's very true, actually. Stuck in your head. Like Malcolm the Middle theme. <laughs> Did that really? Yeah. I never knew that. Wow. I saw them live one time. I was... I was I was in Florida for this work thing, and they're like, we got you guys tickets to see a band tonight. And I'm like, oh, fucking amazing. So we go, and it's Papa Roach. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. So I'm like, oh, God. And then the next night, they're like, guys, we got you tickets for another concert. Papa Roach story. Why did you fucking... <laughs> oh, panel. For the panel. For the panel, Nate. Panel discussion. For the panel discussion at the end. Papa Roach. Papa Roach. But like, and then the next night they're like, we got you tickets for another show. And I'm like, oh, fucking amazing. Oh, can't be worse than last night. They might be giants, which is not worse. Definitely not worse. But it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I wish the Mondays were playing instead, I'll tell you that much. True. And OK Go was the opener. And they had a CD demo at the time. Oh, no okay. one cares. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, is that it? Yeah, I think so. All right, thanks, Chris. Hey. Next, who has number three? That would be me. Josh Cantor, number three! <laughs>
Josh, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Now, this is awesome because this is the first time we've met IRL. That's right. Not literally right now. We talked like half an hour ago. Yeah. Half an hour before. Yeah. But, like, as I told you, you to me have been one of these, like, like the, these question marks for a long time. Now, it was answered before we met, but like I would hear stories of all these songs being played at Fenway Park and, you know, being someone who was never good at sports or picked for any sport whatsoever, I, I, I tend to, anytime music's brought up in a relationship to sports, that's when my ears perk up because I'm like, they don't go together, but yet you are the proof that they do go together. Uh, well, I guess in some way they do, but I mean, I wasn't good at sports either. That's why I learned how to play the organ instead, you know. But you liked sport. Did you like sports? Oh, yeah. Well, baseball. I okay. always loved baseball growing up. And then occasionally here and there had little passing interests in, in other sports. But I always loved baseball, and I, and I always loved the organ music as part of it. Like, even I remember as a little kid. So, um, uh, and I used to just tell people all the time, I bet that must be the coolest job in the world to play organ at a baseball game. And, um, and someone who I had blabbed that to at some point in my life years later was like on the hiring committee uh, and when they had an opening. And, um, and this is someone who, you know, he, we'd written songs together, we'd performed together, he knew my playing style, and he sort of recommended me to come in and have a chance to audition. That was 14 years ago. Which is incredible because, like, you know, there, there is one organist for the Red Sox in the world. And, like, the fact that here you are, this fan that had this, like, just, like, dream of doing it, and you, you wound up doing it. Yeah, it's, like, it's a one in a million. It's a total yeah. crazy, unlikely, amazing thing. I feel super lucky, and I feel sort of the, the weight and the responsibility of carrying on the tradition of, you know, 63 years and counting of live organ music at Family Park. And truthfully, I would have gone to do it at, and I would have gone to play organ for a minor league team in Idaho Falls if that's where the opening had been the fact that it was you know at the oldest major league stadium and I was here in town it was um it's crazy mm -hmm. well my kids will never hear this podcast because they're convinced the Red Sox are the evil team because um, Toronto's the good team. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, so they'll never hear this podcast. But, like, yeah, like, it's probably the most storied sports franchise, like, arguably in baseball. You know, one yeah, of them, could, like, you, you know, could, like you them and the, the... You could make the case for it. I was talking to somebody before the show about how it's, like, um, uh, there's a lot of... Um, the fan base is sort of very multi-generational. You know, I talk to a lot of people who say, like, oh, my grandmother took me to my first game when I was a kid, and her grandmother took her when she was a kid. And um, I'm not sure how much of that there is with some of the other teams, um, particularly in cities where maybe it's a more more of a transplanted fan base, like maybe in the Bay Area or or in Denver, the person I was talking to. Um, Kim, you're... you're uh, Hi, Kim. Manager. Um, so yeah, there's there's incredible history there, and um, and I get to draw on that, which is nice. Like I'm a, um, I appreciate um, Chris here with the footnotes because I'm a librarian in real life, and um, but so I've done a lot of research on the history of music and ballparks and particularly at Fenway, and so um, I can uh, draw on that. But then I can also do um, try to expand it, try to grow the tradition and do um, different 
other interesting kinds of things like play, um, cover, you know, organ instrumental covers of classic punk rock songs, mm -hmm. for example, at baseball games, and then people like you, you know, start sending me messages on the internet and saying like, who are you and why are you doing this? <laughs> well, and this perfectly brings it back to what I want to talk about because, um, you know, yeah, like you said, you're, you're, you're bringing your own take to it. You're expanding on this history that's already there. And instead of expanding on that history for the purposes of evil, like some organist coming in there and doing, like, I don't know, uh, July Talk or Nickelback songs, you're doing it for the forces of good, right? I use Canadian bands there, not to insult any of you Americans, right? That's why I pick Canadians there. But like, you're doing it for the forces of good because uh, you have this interest in this music that I share an interest in. So I want to bring it back to the way I start all of these off, yeah. which is Josh. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, I mean, I think there were um, there were a few early touchstones. The earliest ones I can remember um, when I was like eight or nine. Um, Blondie had a ton of hits. They were very popular on the charts, and I loved them. I thought they were great. And now their hits weren't really punk per se, other than I mean, maybe like one way or another was vaguely mm -hmm. punk. Um, but because I love those songs, like I got the LPs and I sort of went backwards and explored and kind of, you know, at a fairly young age was able to kind of trace them to their roots a little bit and then started to learn from that a little bit about the New York scene. The other thing I remember from early on was that, um, until I was 13, I lived in Athens, Georgia, um, in the late seventies and early eighties. And obviously there was like a very vibrant um, scene there for independent bands, some of which were punk. I mean, the biggest bands that came out of there were like B-52s and R.E.M. Yeah, like I think which that... weren't particularly punk, but there was an there's certainly an influence there, and those bands were in touch with that kind of thing. Um, Pylon think, yeah, was think, a band that I loved. Yeah, I think all those are punk bands. Like, I'm not to cut you off, but like to no. me, the, the, like you know, that's before it became codified, and it was like this is, this isn't. Yeah. But like the B-52s to be doing that at the time they were doing it, that's like as punk as it gets yeah I, yeah I think I think you're right um, you know as far as something that as far as bands from that scene and so I was too young to like go to see those bands mm -hmm. play but you know kids in town kind of the kids who were really into music sort of had an awareness of those bands or on our radar you'd see them wandering around town you'd see them when you went to the record store because they all hung out in the record store um, the uh, you know I, I bought their cassettes um, and uh, Pylon, I remember being the one where I was really like, kind of blown away just by the sort of sheer aggression um, and the screaming and the idea that like this wasn't. I remember thinking at a young age, I was like, this isn't going to be on the charts, but it's still really cool anyway. Which was like for some reason a thought that hadn't occurred to me prior to that. Um, but I guess like all that stuff's like DB Records, right? Was that a lot of put out Pylon? A lot of the DB. Um, I think so. I, I don't think remember so. now. I had the I had those first two records, and I cannot remember the label. But, they, but like, it, were they like you know like as you're applying, they were almost like local hits, right? Like people would know about them in town because these were the bands that were kind of yeah. They played in town, and as they got a little more popular, they might tour around the southeast. You know, or they would play at colleges. That was a t you know the early '80s was a time when um, a lot of colleges, a lot of college students were interested in that kind of music and would book those kinds of bands to come play and could pay them. The birth of college rock. 
Yeah, pretty That's where it starts. So what was the first band, though, that you really spoke to other than Blondie? Um, well, I mean, uh, as far as, like, the punk uh, music. Yeah, like, or, or any, even anything alternative or indie or whatever. Um, I, I liked Cheap Trick a lot when I was real little. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um... You know, very poppy, but like sort of, I guess, some punk elements. Propagandi um, covers them. Really? Yep. Okay. I want you to want me on their first record. All right. It's not the best song on that record. Okay. <laughs> I know um, uh, Bangs does a great cover of uh, Southern Girls. Oh, really? That I, that I enjoy. Like the, so. the pre Bangles Bangs or? No, Bangs from um, Olympia. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, anyway. Uh, what else? Um, you know, I bought uh, when I was thirteen. I bought Frankenchrist when it came out mm-hmm. for no reason other than <laughs> the picture on the cover. I was just like, that. I don't know what this record is. I don't know what it sounds like. It looks completely silly um, and whimsical. <laughs> I'm gonna buy it. Um, I would and, describe Jello's voice as sounding a little whimsical too. Yeah, I guess so. But the you know thematic content of that record is no. not whimsical, and it was so no. that was like kind of shocking, and that was one that my parents probably would not have been psyched to know that I was listening to. Um, but through that, then I kind of got curious about you know other things affiliated to that, and then probably around that time I started um, reading Rolling Stone a lot, you know, which didn't cover punk a whole lot, but they would always mention the Clash the Ramones, the Pistols, and so I was like, hmm, you know, who are these bands, what are they about, and started, you know, getting some of those records. So what was the first show you went to, as uh, any concert even? Um, I mean, my, uh, my parents were big music fans, they were really into a lot of, um, uh, 60s stuff, sort of folk and, and classic soul and R&B, and so, um, they had those records and I was listening to them, and, you know, they took me to shows when I was growing up. Um... I think the <laughs> I think the first rock concert I went to, um, just like as a kid, where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to this concert. And my parents aren't going. Um, was Night Ranger, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like 11 or 12, maybe. Um, and I don't. I mean, in high school, I saw um, lots of shows in big places and small places, and I've forgotten so many of them. But I mean, I was I was kind of a sponge. I was listening to sort of um, all genres and all styles. And we actually moved, my family moved to Chicago when I went to high school. So that was in the late 80s. And we actually lived in Evanston. So, uh, you know, I was aware, again, it was kind of, there was a local scene there, like Big Black, mm-hmm. Naked Ray Gun, um, Urge Overkill. Those were all bands that if you were, you know, a teenager who was into music in that town, there were, you kind of at least had an awareness that that they were happening, that they were doing things there. So. so were you going to shows in Chicago at that point? Yeah, sometimes we'd go to... Uh, yeah, I guess that's what it was. We would get on the train um, and uh, and go to Cabaret Metro or... I'm trying to remember what some of the other places were. Lounge Axe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's all such a blur. It's funny because I was thinking about this today. Like... I remember being in many pits, but I can't remember what the bands were, <laughs> and I can't remember if they were all ages shows or if we had snuck in or 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 or, or what it was. But 
Um, well, Chicago, like in, in the, you know, from an outsider perspective, <coughs> it seems like it was maybe an older scene too. Like those don't seem like there's like a lot of. It doesn't seem like those are all ages bands. I should say, like Urge um, Overkill. Yeah, no, probably not. And I think there was an all ages scene, and I probably wasn't probably as directly music. connected to Vindictives. it. I think of other Chicago <laughs> all ages bands from that era. But anyway, <laughs> but like, so what were some of the first bands that really, you know, took you? Like, what were some of the bands like? You know, I know you're a big Fugazi fan, and like, or or the Jam, um, and yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I went, I went nuts for. Um, Velvet Underground and Stooges, and I guess those are, you know, very very early um, progenitors. Yep. Um, but I got really, really, really into them, and that was just sort of like after I had kind of exhausted classic rock. I was like, well, what else is? What's like a little weirder from that time period? Um, and then those took me to other places. Like I got really into Sonic Youth for a little while. Red Cross was a huge one for me, actually. Um, when I was 18, and I had just moved to Boston to start college, and I saw them, um, they opened for Sonic Youth, um, and they were, it just blew me away, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta know everything, I didn't, I'd never heard of them before, mm -hmm. I was like, I gotta know everything about, and by then they were, they'd been around a while, and they had gotten, you know, um, gotten fairly poppy, like they were pretty far removed from their, Early oh yeah, that first craziness. Stuff. Yeah, um, but I wanted to just kind of devour all of that, and so I, you know, became a huge fan of theirs, and I would, you know, read every interview and um, and you know dissect every song, and they always would talk about in their interviews and even in their lyrics, they would kind of talk about the bands that they liked and the pop culture that they were drawn to, and so that was like for a while they were sort of a roadmap for me of like, you know, when you're just in that stage where you're like trying to find out more like who what can I what lead can I follow to to discover the next cool thing mm -hmm. so they were they were a big one for me so like when I guess when you started you know playing organ had you played in a sports setting before when you were doing the Red Sox like before doing the Red Sox no I mean I had played in bands in high school and college um, some of which were okay and some of which weren't very good and I um, played in like uh, orchestra pits for musical theater and I had done a lot of um, playing like live accompaniment for improvisational theater and that was sort of the biggest transferable skill because there's like there's players on a stage and there things happen and you don't know what's going to happen next and then as soon as something happens you have to be ready to with a musical cue that's appropriate for the situation you're kind of scoring the action live yeah uh, on the fly and so a lot of the you know a lot of what I picked up from doing that I've been able to um, transfer over to the ball games, but it's um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's it's weird. It's different. Like I mostly, um, still to this day, I play with a ton of bands, and I mostly play small rooms. I play Great Scott or you know small places like this. But then, for you know, eighty-one nights every spring <laughs> and summer, I go play a giant sold-out stadium, and I cover pop songs. I do these instrumental versions, and it's um, it's strange and it's different. But then after a while, you sort of get used to it and you don't, you know, get nervous anymore. And so like, how does it work with like what you play? Like how much, how much like uh, like say do you have in the songs that you play? Um, I would say I have a lot of say. Um, they, you know, they pretty much leave it up to me to pick um, what to play. And the DJ and I work very closely together. Um, 
and he's super cool. I wish he was here tonight, but he's DJing the Patriots Monday Night Football game tonight. Because um, I know he, I know he, yeah, exactly. He got to work, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he, yeah, he would have loved to. Kind of, he plays a lot. He plays a ton of amazing, cool, weird music. You know, a lot of punk stuff. And um, but he and I, you know, we talk to each other constantly. We wear a headset um, and communicate all during before the game, during batting practice, the pregame ceremonies, all throughout the game, the post game. We're just sort of giving each other cues, suggestions, feedback. Make sure we both don't play at the same time. We'll usually, you know, work up like a rough outline before the game of some of the things we want to try to hit during the course of the game. But then we usually throw out the outline as soon as the game starts because things start happening that you don't anticipate. Um, so, uh, but we just, you know, we just keep each other alert and just try to play off each other and, and have it build and have it be something that's entertaining for the people who are there listening to the music in any case. I mean, lots of people there aren't paying attention to the music. You know, it is sort of a secondary background thing, but for the people who like it, it's a little extra um, added thing. In the last like three or four years, I've been taking requests on Twitter from fans in the stands. They can tweet me the request of a song that they want to hear, and uh, I'll learn it and play it. Um, and that's actually, that's expanded a lot of what I do in a lot of different genres, but particularly in, in punk or indie or stuff that's off the beaten path, because now people know, it's almost like I have this reputation and people are like, um, you know, they want to try to challenge me or they're like, oh, hey, that's the organist who will play the Ramones if you ask nicely or, or whatever. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and, uh, and it gives me some leeway too, because I think, you know, I really tried before I was doing the Twitter thing, I would, you know, you're playing to a giant, audience and it's not even a music audience per se so you have to like I wouldn't say you have to be middle of the road but you have to play hits you know whether it's new hits old hits really old hits but songs that people will recognize um, but with the request thing it means like you know if people request if I get a request for something that's not a hit I have more freedom to play it without the bosses, as it were, being like, how come you played that song that no one's ever heard before? And I'm like, well, you know, the 12 people sitting in section nine were pretty damn psyched about it, you know. Um, and, uh, but it is, you know, it's just part of that whole, like, um, you know, the cost, like, please the customer. Like, the customer's mm -hmm. always right. So if somebody asks for something weird, then, then make them happy, you know. So you're saying if we all tweet in a Psycho Sin cover, there it's, might be a psycho sit cover. That is what I'm saying. You gotta, you got must be present to play. Okay, okay, absolutely, yes. absolutely. Well then, I, I kind of like, I, you know, it's funny because like the Melvins, like you know, you brought up Steve McDonald who's yeah. doing a record with the Melvins right now. They love baseball. They hate every sport but baseball and golf. Yeah. Those are the only sports they like, and they say because those are the sports where. You're not competing against a clock. You're competing against other people, mm. and those are the sports where you can actually use like strat. I don't know. Buzz is way more articulate. Yeah. Like you lost me. I'm like no. pro wrestling. Yeah. No. I mean, I don't. I don't know the first thing about golf, but I mean, I have all kinds of theories that I won't bore you and everyone else with now about like why I think baseball is special and magical and all that kind of thing. But for people who are already on board with that idea, like they get it. They know. They know what that's about, and you know, you and I were talking a little before the show about um, there seem to be a number of like rock people and punk people almost kind of like coming out of the woodwork now as huge baseball fans. Whereas it seemed like for a long time you you couldn't sort of be out about that. You had to sort of keep it um, keep it under wraps because yeah. it was not cool to like baseball or to like sports or something. Um, and now there seem to be maybe it's just the position I'm in in terms of like 
having this job at Fenway and then playing with all these different bands, but I meet um, a lot of rock people or they get in touch with me who say, um, you know, I love baseball or I love what you're doing in, within, the, within the realm of baseball. And that's been, um, it's been interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I know, like, Johnny Ramone, famously a huge baseball fan. Yeah. Um, and I think that Eddie Vedder purchased his memorabilia. Oh, really? From his widow, yes. Oh. And I believe that he has it, because he's also a huge, crazy... I met him in high school, like, Johnny Ramone, not Eddie Vedder. Yeah. And in, in, in high school, I'm like, are you ever going to pick up your guitar again? He's like, when you hear about a baseball player retiring, do you ever hear about them playing baseball again? I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, you don't. They never do it. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. It's like, they never do it. I'm like, okay, I'll take Perfect. your word for it, Johnny. Yeah. Um, also, last question. Have you ever met Scott Radinsky? Um, no, but I know a little bit about him. Um, I mean, I know he's a, I know he's a musician. <sighs> Ten foot pole and pulley yeah. and scared straight. And he was in a band with um, another uh, White Sox pitcher from that era named Jack McDowell. Um, what? And yeah, <laughs> like um, a punk band. It wasn't a punk band. It was more of a, um, a little jangly, a little little bit of Smithereens meets REM kind of thing. Holy fuck! Um, Did they put a record? <laughs> yes, I think they have a record out, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but I know. Um, Please. And I haven't met Jack either, but I, I actually I play in a band called The Baseball Project, which is a bunch of, um, you know, indie punk rock people who write songs about baseball, and then I'm the sort of adjunct keyboard I bought it player. for my wife for her birthday. Oh, awesome. She loves baseball. Great. Um, she and I are going to get along. She will definitely be able to talk to you about it a lot more than I can. Okay. but uh, I can talk to you about Scott Rodinsky in baseball, and that's well, really so, my knowledge so base. So one of the songs by this band is about a night that they all went out with Jack McDowell and got wasted and then he had to pitch the next day and he pitched very poorly and um, so they are sort of friendly with him I, I haven't met him because I think every time he comes to the gig is like when they're touring out west and I have a game here in town so anyway one of these days but if so do you know Scott or I've never met Scott okay but I am very familiar with his work okay very familiar with his work but also you know the drummer is scared straight uh, Brian Walsby yeah um he was going to be the drummer in Nirvana. He was the first person that Melvins called, because the Melvins were the people that yeah. called around, right? Yeah. And they called him first, and, and uh, Dale's like, hey, do you want to play in that band I've been playing in? And he's like, I'm a, what band? He goes, uh, this band Nirvana? He's like, oh, no, it's okay. And he's like, okay, I'm going to call someone else. And then they called Dave Grohl. So Scott Radinsky is connected to Nirvana. No one cares about this stuff except for me. <laughs> I, I think it's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on this, and yeah, we you. will do this again. And I will be uh, submitting Psychosyn request covers on Twitter starting uh, tonight. I can't wait. <laughs> thank you so much, Josh. Well... Next we have four and five, but four and five I kind of look at as being oh, like footnotes? a... Footnotes? Oh yeah, we do footnotes first. But I really just want to get to this beef thing. Uh, no, Chris, come on up for footnotes. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Cece, by the way. <laughs> I was going to do it. You fucking flew here. <laughs> he drove. I flew. So I, looked, I was trying to look up to see that the band that yeah. just blew your mind up. I can't... What are they called? 
What were they called, Jeff? Did we find out? No, I can't remember. I found something called Steve's band that he's on from the year 2000, but it doesn't list the lineup. Okay, that probably is, that could be it. Because he's, has he been in any other band since Pulley's incredible sophomore LP? <laughs> <laughs> Not seeing anything here other than Pulley, Temperpole, uh, Scared Straight. I, it could be that, I don't know. Anyway. Um, How funny is it when you think about like that little scene in Oxnard, California, and you have out of that scene coming, you know, a great baseball player, Scott Radinsky, you have uh, the clown princes of pop punk, no effects. You have potential Nirvana drummer, Brian Walsby, and Josh Brolin. <laughs> They're all there. What do I say? They're all there watching aggression play. How weird is that, though? Like, what a weird scene. It is a little strange when you frame it in that light, yes. It makes but, uh... every other punk scene just seem like. Like nothing happened afterwards. Uh, I feel like we're people are bearing witness to a lot of what I'm doing over the phone when you say things. Rolling your eyes, shaking my head, and laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't even know what to say to any of that. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. Fine. Fuck you, Chris. Let's move no, on. It's Next great. point. Your point. It was a great point, David. It was a great point. Um, <laughs> I like that it's a lot more contentious in person. Um, <laughs> it is way more contentious in person. Uh, I just I'm, I have weed at home. Like normally I'm high <laughs> as shit when I'm doing this. Like here I'm sober. It's like the lights are brighter. Like um, I thought the the shout out to the cover of Frank and Christ was was a great shout out. Yeah. Uh, and not my favorite DK record though. Was that the first one you heard? Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, not bad start. It just it's I don't know. It's too bad. I wish you caught that early one first. Well, my I got I got way worse. What'd you get first? I got uh, the one with Bedtime for Democracy. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. It's like you hear the first song and it's Dear Abby. You're like, this is going to be a good record. (laughs) And then everything is after. It's just not good. But it does, Frank Grace does have MTV Get Off the Air, which is great. Mm -hmm. And it's got a cover. I mean the cover, the oh, actual the cover. physical yeah, yeah. cover. It's got Which like is, a cover I, that's like... I think is why as a youth I sort of have a weird obsession with Shriners or what have you from that record. Because it's Obs- just bizarre. I've always found it very strange. What do you mean obsession with Shriners? No, just like the aesthetic. <laughs> I don't have an obsession with Shriners. I mean, like, <laughs> the aesthetic I've always found particularly like odd and well, like yeah. the most bizarre. Well, because they're like dudes with fezes on driving mini yeah. cars. Like it's weird. It's worthy of a record cover though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are they still around, Shriners? Actually, no, that's, no, Shriners are definitely still around because I went to see The Who last year. And you know, The Who, <laughs> had, the Who had Shriners walking around selling their greatest hit CD to people. <laughs> if you're going to The Who for this whole like suspension of disbelief that you're still a kid and you're like, I'm a teenager again, I'm going to... And then you're like, the first thing you see is a fucking Shriner selling you a CD. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. I felt so young. At one point, this other guy in his 30s looked over at me and gave me a thumbs up, and it was like, yeah, look at all these other old farts around here. <laughs> I think we've actually spoken about this on the show before. Do we? Yeah. That's my favorite memory from last year. <laughs> all right, bring them up. Okay, next, that's it? Yeah. All right, now we're going to bring up, I, I want to do these two people separately, but i got to do them together, because this is like the duo that I've had hot tubs together in Texas with, I've toured with, I've uh, You've been in a hot tub together? 
That's what I just said the hot tub, Coach. You missed the hot tub. That's the first one. <laughs> this has been uh, that this, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone here, welcome to the stage, Chris Menacucci, Chris Corey, aka CC, and Cooch. And for a while, this was like a, a central duo. Well, also DFJ too, I guess, would be the trio in a lot of bands, right? Yeah, <laughs> He's working. Yeah, but, but I'm saying like you two, yeah, though. Been a couple bands. A couple, a couple bands. Well, done, well, you know what? We've done a couple projects. A couple right? projects. Well, Righteous Jams. Uh, Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> that's going to be the one we're going to talk about the Righteous Jam. We're going to talk about Iron Mind for a good 45 minutes tonight. Just that one song. Um, but like, uh, but you, you were never a mind eraser. Were you a mind eraser? Yeah, of course you were a mind eraser. And then what else? What other bands am I forgetting that the two of you guys have been together? Oh, Born in Hell. Yeah, yeah, going way back. Yeah. Obliteration. Way, way over there. Which one? Obliteration. Obliteration, of course, too. Okay, but I want to start off the same way I start them all off, which is uh, separately, though, how did you guys get into punk? We should I, do it together. Well, it'd be different cities, right? We each other's yeah, why don't you why don't you say why don't you say uh, Chris uh, Corey's story, Cooch, and then Cece, story. you tell Menacucci's story. Uh, no, but I uh, guess Cooch, how did you first get into punk? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. My, <laughs> kind of, uh, I can't kind of crux of the show. I can't, well, I can't pinpoint like an exact date when when I was like, oh, this is the first punk record ever. It's not okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Cooch. Uh, I can't pinpoint an exact right, so, date. <laughs> Think about that. All right. So my, I had a, I have an older brother. He's like ten years older than me. He was like a metalhead, and I think like uh, you know probably he was like super into Metallica. He like wrote letters to Cliff's mom when Cliff died and all this stuff. But anyway, do you have those? Did she write back and everything? Yeah, he still has the responses. Can, can wait, can, can you tell the Sepultura story? Uh, Max Cavalier you guys call our house a lot, and I answer the phone. What? Why would he call your house? Just... My brother did a metal zine in the eighties. <clears throat> what was your brother's metal zine called? Bloodshed. 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 Oh, bloodshed. Like Bob Shed. Except bloodshed. Like Bob Shed. But instead of Wait, how did you never give Bob Shed the nickname Bloodshed? Who knows? Yeah, you know, shit happens. So anyway, uh, he bought Misfits Earth AD, like, you know, because Cliff was always wearing a Misfits t-shirt. And that was like the first kind of punk record. Wait, but why would Max call your house a lot? Because my brother was friends with him. Oh, okay. Like after doing the interview. I thought he would like multiple times just do more interviews. No, weird, weirdos used to call our house all the time, like Glenn from DSI, and <laughs> the guys from Sepultura, and, you know, Trey Azikdoff, and, like... <laughs> How, were you a fan of these bands, and they're calling your house? Were you stoked on this, no, or you I just, was like... a little kid. But did you know, because you're... I was, like, 12. <laughs> yeah, but still, I knew who Metallica was at 12, right? Like, did you, like... Well, I, I knew who Metallica was, but I knew Deicide yeah. were. That's true, I guess Deicide's a little deep cut. But, like, were you, like, taking it back to these people that your brother had records of? We're calling your fucking house cooch is what I'm trying to get at. I don't know, man. My brother used to get mail all the time, records and tapes and shit, and I just was like, mm, this is cool stuff. Okay. Okay, well, now I understand why you can't pinpoint the Did exact... Did you up, like, a, a phone bill to Brazil, like $2,000, yeah, 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 yeah. call it no, Max Cavalera? <laughs> this is why I brought this up, because I thought it would be a funny story for him to tell. It's still funny, but it's now just funny weird. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So what, so what Earth AD? Well, anyway, to get to the point, like that was like the first punk record I ever saw. And then my brother bought like uh, the S.O.D. album and I, as a little kid when I was, you know, that record came out, I think I was 10. 
and we went. There was this really awesome record store in Northampton, Mass, called Main Street Records, and like I'm sure. Well, listening to your past shows, like everybody who's from Western Mass from any era got all their records there as a kid. Yeah. And so I remember they had like the metal section, they had the extremely heavy metal section where you could buy like Napalm Death and SOD albums and shit like that. And uh, so my brother bought the SOD record and I was like really fascinated by the collage on the back and like the music was really crazy and the lyrics were really fucking stupid. And I was like, this is cool music, but it still took me like a couple more years to like sort of catch on to it. So. so what was the first band though that really like other than SOD that that when you caught on to it eventually like what was the first band that really made you like I think like dive in Suicidal Tendencies and then hearing uh, First Four Years by Black Flag because mm-hmm. my friend had like a cassette of that and those were like the, the catalysts so now meanwhile in Virginia what is happening CC? I, well, at that time, I would have been like six years old, so not, not a whole hell of So what were you doing at six? Were you into cool shit? Yeah, man. You know, <laughs> Did you talk to Max Cavalero on the phone? <laughs> Maybe call it from time to time, but not like every day. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia, so like about, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Um, my parents both worked in the District of Columbia, D.C. D.C. For those who don't know. I'm Canadian, but even I know well, that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no. So, like Tim Hortons. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was born in 1981, so I, I was born at the same time as hardcore, you know, theoretically in Washington, D.C., which is weird. Um, so are you saying that you're like the physical no. manifestation of this genre? Is that what you're trying to get at? That you're like the Christ-like figure for hardcore, like the embodiment? It, I, sh- I should have been hung from a cross. I, and I should have been dead already. This is getting so goth. <laughs> Um, so I, th- I think it was my mom had like some punk stuff. My mom was not punk. My mom was born in like 1940 something. I shouldn't have said that. Mom, I hope you, she'll never listen. <laughs> 1948, 1949. So, uh, but she had like a tape with the Ramones on it. It had like a couple Sex Pistols songs actually. Have you ever asked her about how she heard that stuff or where that tape I, came from? I mean, from? She, I know that. It was somebody, you know, that had a tape deck at her work, and she had, like, a couple work friends, and someone had dubbed it for her. But, I mean, she also had, like, you know, he pointed out, he mentioned the Smithereens. My mom was, like, a huge Smithereens fan and, like, like went to see them and stuff. Um, weird Nirvana note. Uh, this is what your show is about, right? Like, shit like this. So Nirvana uh, used to ride around in the van. They had a tape. Nirvana sucks, by the way. Don't listen to them. And one... Uh, if you haven't heard them. <laughs> one side was uh, Celtic Frost, and the other side was the Smithereens. Oh, yeah, no. And, and that, but essentially, like, that's the DNA of their shitty band. I, but here's a weird conversation I was having the other day, and this comes back to growing up in Springfield, Virginia is the first Foo Fighters record, I think, is, like, way better than all the Nirvana records with that guy, Kurt Cobain. What? <laughs> what, you think? So, Dave Grohl actually went to my sister's high school. No, 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 You can't move on. Okay, I, mean, I, I could. <laughs> I, 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 like, okay. Like, this isn't just, like, some contrarian, the second DYS record is better than the first no, DYS style argument, which those, is those totally MP3s, true. Those exclusive MP3s that Bridge Nine put out are the, the good shit. <laughs> the good shit. <laughs> but when did... Uh... <laughs> so around the time that I was like... Well, it was too real music, there. Well, around the time when I was getting into music was when Nirvana came out, and I remember seeing like the videos on MTV like I was a latchkey kid when I was uh, like 12. Um, 
and so I would come home and literally just watch MTV until I, until my parents got home, and then I just listened to the radio. And the radio station where I grew up uh, was WHFS. Um, this is like a real deep cut, but HFS was a station that grew out of the station that they were having the benefit show for at a college in Northern Virginia where all the Discord people met for the first time. Like where Ian met, you know, like, I don't know, Guy Picciotto, and I think uh, the Cramps might have played the show. Oh, that's that famous it, it's Cramps? It's that show. It's that show. But yeah, is so that HFS, station? like, eventually grew out of that, and then they just became, you know, they were owned by a clear channel or something in the 90s, but... What's that say? There's another station in D.C., though, that has, like, some crazy Discord connection where they still have, like, like reels or some shit, like... Live reels? What's that one? The, you know, uh, you would have played it. WNYU, New York City. No, in DC. <laughs> I don't know. They have um, like minor threat records in the library and shit. Oh, really? WUST? Oh. oh, yeah, WMUC in Maryland. Yeah, okay, that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. um, they played like Fugazi sometimes after hours. Like, I heard Suicidal on there. And, like, uh, like by the time I was 13, I sort of knew that there was like this other music from where I grew up. And I don't know. Uh, first concert I went to was the Green Day Dookie Tour. <laughs> Who was the opener? Uh, the Pansy Division opened and... Uh, Riverdale's or no? Because the Riverdale's did no, Toronto. No, the Pansy Division. No, but it was Riverdale's and Pansy Division. No, for us it was just those two. Okay. And uh, it was like the, probably the most like ignorant, awful... Uh, oh, like, it was, it was, uh, so people were not ready for an out and proud gay band <laughs> in Northern Virginia in 1994. Um, I don't know how it was for you guys, but it was fucked up. Oh, it wasn't fucked up like your band. I mean, it was it was just awful. Yeah, uh, like my band. It was like a lot of it, and it was like, oh, oh, all right, if you want to go there, hey, take it. hey, oh, man, hey. I've got thick skin. Okay. In 2012, I was the 11th coolest person in the world according to the NME. What is that? Yeah, don't ask. Um, I don't know, so that was the first concert I went to. I saw, and I went to. There was this thing called the HF Festival that that radio station would put on, and they, you know. I went, I saw the Ramones there like maybe six months later, like, you know, 1995, so it's not like that fucking cool or anything, but. I never got uh, to see them. We uh, talked about this opener, on the show. The opener was Jawbox at, no, Shudder to Think. Oh. Um, I like Shudder to Think, Discord too. Discord connection. I mean, I, I'm trying to keep this all sort of, you know. I like, I love, I love Shudder to Think, but like, it's a, that's a, a, a weird build. 12 noon on like a, in a 60, <laughs> Thousand person uh, stadium shutter to think plan. I wonder, like, think about that. How hard would it be to be shutter to think? Was that a tour or they just local? No, support? so they would always throw like a local yeah. band. It was one of these things where it's like twenty bands for twenty bucks. I mean, I saw some cool shit like PJ Harvey played um, Bush, their first American tour that that hit there. Um, In Canada, they were called Bush X. The hardest pit I ever saw was at that show, and it was for Primus. And it was, it was it was fucking nuts. And Les Claypool was wearing a uh, a mailman hat. I'll never forget that. <laughs> uh, Mike Watt played, and he brought out Les Claypool. You know, because um, this was the Mike Watt ball hog or tugboat era. Yeah, yeah. And so he would always bring out like like funny guests and stuff. And he brought out Les Claypool, and they had like a fucking slap bass duel. <laughs> oh my god! By the this way, men like two good songs. <laughs> I'm not. I have enough. People hissing. Just hissing. I already, already have enough uh, bands that I go after on this show, so I'm not going to go after them. Uh, you know who opened for the Minutemen? Or sorry, the Minutemen. You know who opened for that Mike Watt tour in Canada? Your, I don't. Your favorite band of all time, the Foo Fighters. Dude, such a good first LP. I'm. I. I need. 
Uh, you know, I, part of why I loved him is because the name was like a, a UFO reference and it was yeah. on like Roswell Records. Yes. I was like 13 and the other thing that I was into was UFOs, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently is funny. I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Um, so that's back to the pansy vision, uh, dude. I, I don't know how much we should talk about that. It was it was it was pretty bad, man. No, I, I, I and I, I didn't realize until years later how fucking awful it was. Like the way the the way the crowd reacted to like a band being like out and proud and gay. We had a, well, like I had the guy from uh, Chicks Dig It on the show, KJ, right. and they went on tour with Pansy Division a bunch. And he was like, they'd show up at show sometime, and the promoter would be like, yeah, we're not having a gay band play here. And they'd be like, well, fuck you, and they'd all just pack up their stuff and leave. I mean, I know, so, like, I know the perception here in Massachusetts is that, like, Virginia's the fucking South, and you all, like, you know, I, I don't know, whatever. I'm sure, Nate, you probably run into the, I don't even know if he's, there he is. Yeah, you know what this is all about. But anyway, uh, Northern Virginia is, like, the, the part where, you know, the so-called, like, liberal area, and, like, when, when you were watching the election returns this past election, um, what eventually where all the blue votes came from was like the area where I grew up and like the area where the show was but when the pansy division came on it was like like 10,000 people just screaming like you know horrible homophobic shit so it was like not really cool at all that band I think like you know everyone talks about how like oh bands in the 80s touring was so much harder for punk bands to be a punk band in the 80s to be pansy division in the 90s touring I think would have been one of the one of the toughest slogs. Fucking terrifying because you're getting put on shows where, like, dude, a Green Day show in 1994, like, I, I mean, I don't know, what's like a popular rock? But they were still, like, I, because we, my brother and I became huge Pansy Division fans after that show and started going to see them and we'd talk to them about that show as, like, kids and they'd be like, yeah, like, Green Day brought us out there because they wanted to expose us to, like, all these kids, but it was... Yeah, it was ugly. It could have um, been really ugly. Green Day was pretty good. Do you think they're better than Nirvana? Yeah, I mean, Nirvana's got some tracks. Okay, a couple tracks. I'm, I'm just saying. All right. I just don't like, you know what, like I had a period of time where it was cool, you know, I liked Nirvana, but like, I straight up rather listen to Pearl Jam, don't care what you think. <laughs> All right, all yeah, right. That was a pro, that, so Pearl Jam was probably like the first band that like I really cared about as a kid. Um, you had to pick a side if, as like a kid who didn't know any better between Nirvana and Pearl Jam. I remember in high school for me. Yeah, I had a live set where they covered uh, the Dead Boys, so that's actually the first way I heard Sonic Reducer. It was oh, yeah, a Pearl Jam cover. I heard it in Airheads, I think first. <laughs> I mean, dude, that's cool. I, that's a good movie. You can hear Reagan Youth. Yeah, Reagan. Oh no, Air, no, the, Reagan Youth. Air, no, Hardcore Logo has. Sonic Reducer, right? It must have been a Canadian-only movie. I don't know. Hardcore Logo is a Canadian movie, but it's very famous in your country because Quentin Tarantino re-released it. He does that like... You know, so, does anyone know Hardcore Logo? No. What? Oh, God. You got, oh, everyone needs to see that movie. It's like a good Canadian movie, and there's not a lot of them. There are really not a lot of them. So you can probably... Strange Brew. Strange Brew. Yeah. I think that might actually have been made by an American person. Isn't Ivan Reitman directed it, or who directed he it? He probably produced it, right? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I thought I remember hearing that it was American. Fact checker, fucking split. Where's no, he's right there. He's watching. He wanted. He wanted to get a good seat to watch this duel. Um, <laughs> Cooch, 
Back to you. What were some of like, I guess when you started going to shows, what were some of the first local bands that you were kind of seeing or some of the first bands that you were going to see? Uh, the first show that I went to that was like a distinctly hardcore show was this place that was by UMass. It was called Katina's and it was like this really weird spot where they had like, um, it was literally a house that they made into a nightclub. And so the, I, I had missed by like a year, like all these killer shows like Agnostic Front came through like on their last tour and like Citizens Arrest played there and like Murphy's Law and all these token entry and all these shows. And I just missed them because like at the time it was like 30 miles from my house. I didn't have a car because I was like 15. And I didn't know anybody that was going to these shows. But um, So like the, I think the first time I went there was like the first real hardcore show and it was like a bunch of shitty local bands and then like Sam Black Church. And like, and if you grew up in Massachusetts in the 90s, that was like the band that everybody knew. And they were huge here, but they had no following outside of like Western Mass and like pretty much that was it. They had, I saw them in Connecticut one time, there was like 10 people there. But like once you got past Worcester, you know, you went from a show in Boston where there'd be like a thousand people and a show in Worcester might have a couple hundred and then you get out to Western Mass and there's like a hundred. And then after that, they had zero following. But that was like the band that everybody knew. I think that's like a phenomenon of for bands of that era, or maybe more than that era in Boston. It seems. Yeah, like, kind of. But they were like the big band. But even like, Mass. but even like, but they would play Western Mass all the time. So you go see them, and then like, but there was like some. I'm trying to think of other early shows. Like, there was a the one that like always sticks out in my mind. This was the one that I was like, this shit is fucking cool. And it really made me like stick with it. Was uh, Murphy's Law played this show at UMass, and I think I was probably like 16. And it was Stigma's birthday. They brought Stigma with them. I think the Toasters were like the headline band too. So there was this like huge. There was like this was back when you had a show at a college, and there'd be like four or five hundred people there, which doesn't happen these days. No. And uh, unless it's Diplo. Yeah. No, like a hardcore show. Yeah. Like no, somebody set up in like the student rec room. How, who would those people have been back then, do you think, at those shows? Like, would they have all been hardcore kids? Not or really. Just I randoms. Like the place that I was talking about where we were good at shows, it was just one of those places where, like, you know, bands are playing, so, like, local weirdos showed up. And you'd have this real cool cross-section of people that was, like, <coughs> hardcore people and punks and bikers and goth people and just, like, fuck-up druggies and just general weirdos. You know, so you had, like, a pretty good cross-section of, like, subculture going on there. And it wasn't just strictly, like straight-edge hardcore people or, you know, spiky-punk people or whatever, so. Mm -hmm. So, wait, so... But yeah, so this is Murphy's Law Show, and, like, this guy, I'm friends with him now, this guy Dave, and he was, like, a Nazi skinhead at the time, but he's sort of not anymore, I guess. I mean, this obviously doesn't sound cool. Does not sound I, cool at all. <laughs> a lot of people know him and know that he's not that anymore, but at the time, he was sort of a misguided youth who went through a lot of phases. And uh, at the time, he was wearing, like, a white power T-shirt, and Jimmy ran out in the crowd and was like the fuck's up with that t-shirt and he was like oh you know I'm proud of whatever blah 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 and Jimmy's like that's fucked up and there was this kid from our town who was like he was this to me at the time I was like wow there's he was a black skinhead and that to me like kind of blew my mind at the time because I didn't know a lot about the shit and he was fucking huge and he just ran over and was like boom and like knocked his head off his shoulders Whoa. so this kid Dave went running out he pulled out pepper spray and just started spraying it everywhere and like it got real gnarly, the cops showed up and like busted it. And the show, you know, the show went on. And like it was cool after that, but like we we're just like, what the fuck happened, you know? And then after the show, uh, the kid who booked the show we were friends with, like invited all the bands back to his frat house. <laughs> so we went back there. You know, me and my friends were like 16 years old, and it was like a Tuesday night. We had school the next morning, and like 
we're hanging out at a frat house party with like <coughs> Gestapo and Vinny Stigma and all these people. And we're like, this is the coolest fucking shit I've ever seen. You know, so <laughs> what was Vinny Stigma like at a frat house party? He was just like a happy-go-lucky dude, like he always is. You know, they had tons of beer, and I think I was wearing like a Bruins hat or something, and had like a Whalers hat. Somebody had a hockey hat, and he was like, what the fuck, man? And we're like, whoa, and he's like, and he's like, New York fucking Rangers, and we're like, oh, and then, you know, we just like talk about stupid shit. And then at some point, Murphy's Law busted the keg open that was there, and they flooded out the whole house, so we split. They busted open the keg? Yeah, because these, you know, these were like professional party dudes where like, instead of where normal people would have a dishwasher, they had a kegerator. And so they busted open the, uh, the keg, like in the kitchen, the whole house flooded out with beer, and then we're like, alright, I guess it's 3 o'clock in the morning and we have high school the next day. What's a kegerator? It's the thing that you hook the keg into to tap it. Is that what it's called? Yeah. That's actually the name of it? Yeah. Kegerator? I never so, knew that. Well, anyway, so they busted open the keg, and we had to leave. And we had high school the next day. And, we, you know, people were like, oh, what'd you do last night? And we're like, whoa, let me tell you. You know, it was a lot fucking cooler than what other kids were doing. <laughs> yeah. So that was, like, my introduction to, like, something really gnarly happening at a hardcore show. Where I was like, this is fucking cool, and I want to keep doing this shit. So. It's funny how, like, the gnarly moments are always, like, those moments where you're like, oh, I'm going to come back to this. Yeah. Like when I saw Alice Donut, the lead singer, tackled my friend and I. We're like, my friend never came back, and I'm like, I'm going to come to these shows more often. <laughs> Alice Donut rules. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what was your first band? You, what was the first band you started playing in? Uh, the first band I was in was a ska band, and that was because all growing up through uh, from second grade and on. I was in like high school band. I played trumpet and trombone, so it was like a natural sort of progression. So you played trumpet or trombone in a ska band? Yeah, but it was cool. Like we got to open for the Specials one time, and that was really, Whoa. really awesome. Who was in the? What lineup was, was like? How many members were from Couldn't the Specials? Tell you. I mean, whoever was in the Specials in '93, '94, that was who we played with. Okay, but I was like, you know, that was cool shit. Do you still play? No, I've okay. tried and I can't. Can't do that anymore. No, it's, it's been a long time. It's a hard thing. So like, I so you playing ska? Were you a ska kid, or were you just into anything at that point? No, it was just like I wanted to be in a band, and that was the instrument I knew how to play. And there were these kids in my high school that were a couple grades older than me, and they were like total <coughs> fucking whack job weirdos. And they were like, "Oh, we have this band. You should join it." And I was like, "All right." What was the band called? SMA. What did it stand for? Didn't stand for anything. <laughs> <laughs> Still like the Santa Monica Airlines logo, the little the little airplane on fire crashing. It just had as the logo, and everyone would be like, "What does it stand for?" And they're like, "Doesn't stand for anything." <laughs> that was that. But the uh, the guitar player, he was he had like a bunch of hardcore records that someone gave him, and he didn't like them, so he gave them to me. And you know, this was like probably sixteen or seventeen in high school, and it was like. All these early Poison Idea records and like a Jawbreaker seven inch. Whoa! And I still have them all, and those were, that was like my introduction to like cool records. And that's also the the seed that for the begets Poison Idea collection. the craziest Poison Idea collection. <laughs> right. And for those of you who don't know, Cooch has the craziest Poison Idea record collection. 
in the world. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes like, like, I have a photo of it saved on my old cell phone. And I'd be like, yo, check out my friend's Poison Idea collection. But it was like the funniest mix of records because it was like the Darby Crash 7-inch and Discontent, which like blew my mind and still blows my mind. And then a fucking Jawbreaker Busy 7-inch. And I still, you know, I hate that band, but I still like that record. <laughs> I, I, I like that band. <laughs> You guys go really hard on pop punk here. You guys do not like pop punk at all. At all. You gotta have a secret pop. Yeah, we already established. I mean, I greened it. Literally said I would. I mean, to to pick up where he was leaving off with Nirvana. There's a video of me and my friends. Whenever Bleach came out, was that '89? Yeah. '90. There's a video of me and my friends out in the front of my parents' house in the street smashing that cassette with a hammer and then somebody peeling out on it with their car. That, that exists on a VHS somewhere in like the bowels of my friend's house back at home. Why do you hate Bleach so much? I don't know. Why did the, we're just like, this shit sucks and we smashed the tape. Did you guys know that you had this shared hatred of Nirvana? No. I, I think, you know, the, this is like uh, we're exaggerating for the stage a little bit. <laughs> okay, well, he's the one who, but I mean, I, well, he hit it with a hammer and ran over it with a car, so I don't know how much exaggeration's involved there. <laughs> that was back when you had to buy stuff based on word of mouth or, you know, speculation. You couldn't listen to it online first, so if you bought a stinker, you were like, fuck it. You know, yeah. you just keep, keep listening to Frank and Christ until you, you put it, it in a drawer somewhere. You had to smash it. Yeah, yeah. So how about you, CC? What, what was when did you start playing music? What was your first band? I, I uh, first band I was in was called uh, Active Aggression. <laughs> Active Aggression or a- Act of Aggression? Okay. Never recorded anything. Played for a few months. You know, it was a hardcore band. Yeah, yeah. It was in high school. So when did you get into hardcore? Like, what was that? Uh, I, I someone gave me like I borrowed a few uh, CDs. Uh, like one was the Discord Year and Seven Inches thing. One was some Victory Comp, and I was like, all right, well, I like this one thing, which the Year and Seven Inches. I don't <laughs> I like the, the Victory Comp. Thing. Yeah, the Victory Comp. I, I did not like. You're uh, not a High Fire and the Roadburners fan. I mean, you know, they're the exception. Obviously, <laughs> but I don't know. I was 15, and it was like the first time. Other than like other than Green Day, it was like the first music that I heard where I was like I could play literally all the way through the song without <laughs> fucking up too bad. Cause uh, dude, I can't play a Pearl Jam song now. I've been playing guitar for like. But that's you know, a dream, right, 13. Chris? Well, yeah, obviously, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna keep working. I mean, that's on why it. I got in the game. <laughs> One day, it's all gonna be worth it when I can sit on stage and play even flow, start to finish. <laughs> yeah, I've been working on it. <laughs> So uh, and that that fizzled out after a couple months. I started another band called Strike Out uh, when I was still in high school, which was like just straight up like by the book, like late '90s youth crew, like Cheater Beat, like fucking octaves, like whole everything. Did you guys record? Yeah, there's a demo. Oh my gosh! I'll send it to you. I want uh, it. It's the No Such Luck demo that Greg's high school band. It's straight up good. Like some some I'd like one one of you like three entrepreneuring people out there should uh, talk him into releasing it. The, but the strikeout is bad, just bad, not good at all. I mean, it's like endearing, you know, to like somebody who like like Justin thinks it's funny because he was like, oh yeah, you sound like time flies, but even worse. Did you sing it? <laughs> no, I played guitar. Played guitar, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was Born in Hell's your first time you sang? Yeah. Way later, we'll get to that. I mean, if you want to get to that, we well, we're not going to get we're not going to get to it now. We're going to have to get to it in part two, Chris. Uh, okay. Because uh, I think we're going to be running out of time 
pretty soon. Yeah, but um, before we do, I gotta bring up one of my favorite bands, Righteous Jams. Go for it. How did that all come together? I gotta fucking fly in my face there, sorry. How did that all come together? <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for coming on the show. Now, that was a super, super episode. Uh, so thank you, Josh. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Chris <laughs> O'Toole. And Chris O'Toole and I, of course, will be back later on this week with a very special footnote. We'll have some of the contributors on, um, Dave Martin, Dave Ackerman, uh, who knows who, Ackerman, sorry, uh, who knows which one, both, hopefully, who knows, maybe not one, are they, some, oh my gosh, Chris Corey is sending me texts as I'm doing the extra to his episode, so, um, yes, Chris Corey, thank you also once again for coming on the show. That is it for this week. Um, next week on the show, we have a very awesome, awesome live episode from Washington, D.C. And uh, check this lineup, everyone. Coming back to the show, one of the best guests ever, one of the most entertaining people, charismatic people I've ever met, Jason Hamacher of Frodis, of The Regents, of Hilarity. And he will be back on the show for his second appearance. Also on the show for a first appearance, John from Give, John Sweatpants of the Revboard fame. No, just kidding. John is, of course, the front person of one of the coolest bands going right now, Give. And then also Dante from Ignition and Iron Fucking Cross and Alec Mackay of Faith. Of ignition, of the warmers, of oh man, what uh oh it, it's it's an amazing episode. It is a fun, fun conversation with some great guests. That is next week on the show. So thank you everyone for listening, and uh, ooh, it's gonna be a good good January. Trust me, these are good these are good times. These are good times coming up. So thank you everyone for listening. Once again, please do me a favor, subscribe to this, write a review, rate it, tell all your friends about it. That's a better way to support it. Just tell all your friends about it. Let them know this is going on and, and hopefully they enjoy listening to it. Uh, sorry, this is late. Hopefully I'll fix all these computer problems that I've been having. It cost me an episode this week and that's, that's left me kind of gutted. Um, but onto something really serious, please, once again, please, 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 if you have any money, contribute to that Freddie Pompey fundraiser effort going on right now. And that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, anyone can do this stuff. Go out there and make your own culture. And I will see you next week.